Hi, welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. Today, Samantha and I are going to be sharing your stories, questions, and comments from our community of listeners, which we always love because I think it brings us more interconnected and realize that there's somebody out there that's experiencing something that may be going on in their own life. Um, Samantha, would you like to start us off? I would. This first one is a question we get fairly frequently, so I thought it would be good to start us off. It says, I'm writing with a question about a Labradorite pendant I own. It's a very strong stone, so much so that any necklace that I buy for it breaks. I've tried metal necklaces and also rope necklaces, and they eventually break in a couple of weeks. My Labradorite is a very powerful stone that I bought with much love and intention, and it has protected me from many negative energies. I'm curious about why the necklaces keep on breaking. Has this ever happened to you? What might be the reason? I feel very connected and grateful to this stone, but as the last metal necklace broke, which was like the fourth or fifth I bought, I got a little worried. Well, I hope the Labradorite is okay, because often if, you know, if a necklace, the chain part breaks, then the whole stone falls, and sometimes it can chip, which is hard. In my experience, this happens because the stone energetically gets too heavy with all the stuff it's been carrying and holding for you. So I would recommend that you do a thorough cleanse and charging of this Labradorite. Maybe give it like a week or two or even a month off from holding up your energy for and with you. One thing you could do is just get a bag of dried herbs like mugwort or sage, frankincense, and just stick it in that bag so that it just gets to tuck away and recharge its batteries. Or you can just get a bowl of rice and bury the stone in there. If you have an outdoor planter, like just a big bowl of soil, you can just stick it in there and let the earth's energy help recharge it. So there's many different ways you can give this stone the rest and replenishing energy that it needs. If you have a giant cluster quartz, you can place the stone on there for a while. If you have a singing bowl, you can use that. I think you get the idea. There's a lot of ways you can help this stone to cleanse and recharge its energy. But I think that's what it needs right now is just a nice little break. Do you ever have periods in your life where you feel like if you were an iPhone and you're on 3% battery and you plug it in and you get up to like 10% battery, but then you unplug again and you go down to 0% battery, it's like never enough to actually replenish and recharge your energy. Sometimes I think our stones feel that way too. So I would recommend that you just give it two, three, four weeks of a break and wear another stone because that's usually what this is an indicator of. And I, I hope that helps. That was a lot of really helpful information. And that was, I mean, you're the, the crystal guru. You know, I love, love, love that you share so much vital information with, with, with me <laughs> and with our <laughs> listeners. Uh, but I, I think, too, that my gut response was maybe it's, it needs a little a bit of a break and it's time to wear a different stone for a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe carry it in your pocket for a while instead of wearing it. Or uh, I'm not sure, but. Thank you for all that wonderful information. Sure. Um, our next one, I've set some very strong boundaries in a 30-year friendship that has slowly become toxic. I've struggled for years with feeling the energy of this friend intuitively saying that interactions with me were an obligation because of our long history, but yet would try to address it directly with her and always would get things like, oh, you know, I love you. I'm just really busy or you analyze things way too much. Something in me changed this week after hearing that I was too sensitive and overthink things too much. I refuse to meet in person and have the same conversation we've had so many times. I just followed my gut and said that, yes, I am highly sensitive and can overthink things, but that's what makes me who I am and gives me the ability to deeply connect with people. This friend and I have lives that are deeply intertwined in the same small town we share the same circle of friends, and our husbands are also friends with each other before any of us became couples. We each have two children whose lives also intertwine. I know in my heart that cutting ties is the healthiest choice, 100%. I just love any advice you have on how to navigate this moving forward when it is so complicated. Unless we move to another location, there's no physical way that our Family's paths will not continue to cross, whether it be school, social settings, and sporting events. And I, I think 
I, I can feel a heaviness with this because when when friendships of any duration, but especially the longer friendships, end, there's always a grieving period. There's always a time of I'm, my, this is my own personal experience when I've had long friendships that have ended or taken a new turn. But one thing to consider is maybe you can redefine the parameters of the, I mean, I absolutely am impressed as hell. And I love that your response was, I am highly sensitive and I can't overthink things, but that's what makes me who I am and gives me the ability to deeply connect with people. That was you stepping up into your power and saying, no, this is who I am. This is who you've always loved or said you loved, and I'm not going to be anything less than that. That's huge. That's huge in any relationships, but especially in long-term friendships. That since the lives are so intertwined, finding some maybe some new interests or it might not be the same, but I think it can still, it doesn't feel like there's any malice or discontent that has to be abrupt, but you can protect yourself with um, maybe not being with this person one-on-one. Well, people who are toxic like this tend to also be dishonest. And so I think honesty is always the best reaction. You know, if this friend has been a frenemy and not very nice and called her sensitive and overthinking, and those are, are not nice things. And it doesn't seem like this friend was very honest with her, whereas our listener seems to be a hundred percent honest. Yes. My dog is my dog is sitting on my lap and sneezing. I apologize. He uh, she has a little cold. Anyway, um I have a friend who is just so amazing at honesty and setting boundaries and I have learned so much from her. And she had a similar situation where they had to see each other at their kids sporting events and at their mutual church and all sorts of stuff. And after church one day she just pulled this friend aside and said, look, clearly our friendship is going in different directions. I will always love, admire, and respect you. And I hope you will do the same for me, but we're going in different directions. We're not seeing eye to eye. We still have to engage with one another. So let's just keep it civil, but let's be honest about where we are right now. Wow. That's impressive. I thought it was too. And they're still able to interact. It's just on a, you know, surfacey, how are you doing? Good to see you. Your kid played a great game last night. Thanks. So did yours. So I I just think being honest is the best response here. Don't sweep it Mm -hmm. under the rug, address her, look her in the eye and say, I love all the 30 years of memories we've had together, but we're going in different directions and that's okay. That's life. And let's just be civil to each other from here on out. It's not easy, but you are worth more than the energy you would have to sacrifice to maintain this friendship. And just remember that you are worth more than this. Well said. Okay. Our next question says, I was listening to your earlier podcast on adult children of narcissistic parents. I'm always tuning into what my mom is thinking and feeling. And I try to understand from her perspective. Well, she never cares what I'm thinking or feeling. She always says how she does everything perfectly. And then at the same time, she has to mention how bad I'm doing everything. At least I understand why she's like this now. In the past, I never knew what narcissistic personality meant. Thanks so much for the knowledge from your podcast. I want to know if narcissistic people are behaving like that intentionally or they actually are not aware of it. Okay, this is a question I've had for a long time too. Because I always think of that Maya Angelou quote when she says, you know, when you know better, you do better. Uh And I think, I wonder if these narcissistic people, if they knew better, would they do better? I don't know. Here's what I think. I do believe they're behaving like this intentionally, but I'm also not convinced they're always 100% aware of it in the moment. In my long experience with narcissistic parents, I think that they're kind of like two-year-olds, you know, like a two-year-old knows they shouldn't be having the temper tantrum in the middle of the grocery store, but they can't stop themselves. That's how I look at, at many, many narcissists, that they, they know it's wrong and yet they don't have that control over their, their inner needs. Because if you look at what's at the heart of a narcissist, it's me, me, me. 
And all they care about is themselves. They don't care that they're throwing you under the bus, that they're hurting your feelings. They care about themselves and getting their needs met. So in the moment, I think they are behaving like that intentionally because it's all about a power exchange and they want to get power from you and they want to hold their power over you. It's the way they feel better about themselves. And so I think they're aware of it in the moment. But it's tricky because there are different types of narcissists. And I think one of the most difficult narcissists is the martyred narcissist, the ones who play the victim card. Oh, poor me. Here's my pity violin. Listen to me play it. Those are very difficult because often the adult child of the narcissist will say, oh, but maybe she's just being like that or he's overreacting because he had such a difficult time with this or that. And so as an empath, especially, we're going to feel bad for them and want to help them. And yet, I think for many narcissists, that's all part of the game. At the end of the day, what has helped me is I don't care why the narcissist is doing it or if they're aware of why they're doing it. To me, a narcissist in action is like a raging speeding bus coming at me. I'm not going to pause in the middle of that street and say to that bus driver, do you know what you're doing? Do you know that speeding is wrong? I'm just going to get out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? Well, I think that what's kind of rolling around in my head is learned behaviors of someone may, I'm thinking of different narcissistic people I know in my life. And in some instances, it's been incredibly apparent how intentional it is. And other times, I can't help if it becomes someone's default position because that's what they're so used to doing. So I think that there's an overlap with some circumstances, but often it's, it's premeditated. I I really believe that it's almost like, okay, this is the the desired response. I want, this is what I'm going to do to get there. And maybe it's an insecurity with always having to make someone else feel worse. I don't know, but I think that it's often, intentional, but sometimes might just be the way someone becomes because that's the way they've always, they've either learned to, so this comes back to nature nurture. Do you come in as a narcissist or is it a learned behavior or is it both? I think it can be both. Yeah, I do too. But sometimes if you see a narcissist in full throttle action and you look into their eyes, there's a glint of enjoyment. Oh, very much so. I won. Yeah. Yeah. I'm winning. I got you. Yeah, this is, and and it goes back to that premeditated of setting someone up for the kill. (laughs) It's a little graphic, but it's true. Yeah, I'll play this. Yes. And it's, for for those of us that may not be wired that way, it takes us a long time to catch on sometimes. (laughs) I know. So I think, I think in the moment they are intentionally aware of it. Can they later express remorse? Yes. And I think, again, there's a, you know, there's a spectrum of being narcissist. And I think so for some, maybe that remorse is truthful. But again, I don't know. Maybe the remorse okay. is more, ooh, you saw, you recognize, I'm losing you. I'm losing my power over you. So I got to rein it in. Okay. But how about if they're not, well, going back to the glint in the eye. We can feel it. We can see it. We know it's being manipulative and controlling. We know it's being done for a person and it's for, for a purpose and it's very intentional. But if you at some point have a conversation and they're not able to own that or even see it as something that they did wrong or that they were even why it would have had the impact that it did. There's sometimes it's that Swiss cheese factor of almost like completely oblivious to, well, I, that was never what I intended. Why would you take it that way? So is that another volley to stay in that narcissistic power or is it an actual inability to feel that the I lack think, of empathy would be a characteristic? I think it's, it's a, that's a form of gaslighting. True. Very true. I think that narcissists, I think they know what they're doing. I really, really do. I've studied this for so long. <laughs> Advanced degrees in this subject. Advanced degrees. And I've, <laughs> I really have. I've read so many books and I've just sat, you know, as an observer. I I think they know what they're doing. 
And I think it's all about power and control for them. But I think think the number one thing is protecting ourselves with the way that feels best, whether it's increased boundaries or, you know, finding a, a, a way to deflect that so that it does, you don't own it or, or feel that it becomes true for you. And I think when it's apparent, as in the case of this listener, you can't always exit yourself from the relationship. Now, some people have, some people just haven't spoken to their parents in 30 years. You know, I had a coworker who got a phone call in the early 2000s and the person said, your, your father just died. You know, she hadn't seen him since she was a a kid. I mean, so sometimes you just have to get out of that situation. But there are those of us who are, you know, in it to win it, whatever that means with our narcissistic parent. And in that case, it has to be a series of things. You have to set boundaries in tandem with exiting the situation when it gets toxic and negative. So you can't just set a boundary and expect everyone to go along. Because the whole family with a narcissistic parent, the whole family is playing a role. Mm-hmm. So when you set a boundary, everyone else reacts and it's never positive in the beginning. No one's like, yay for you. You set a healthy boundary for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard. So you've got to set the boundary, continue to do the work. And then when it does get to that gaslighting or just... Uh, you know, what was she saying? Like, I'm so perfect and you're not, you just, you got to walk out in every single moment, walk out, hang up the phone. So it's not set a boundary one and done. Right. It's constant. Very, very good point. Our next one, over the past year, my call to answer my intuitive abilities has been getting louder and louder. I've been doing a lot of inner work as well. I'm at a place where I love who I am and have a strong pull to focus on my health, especially what I eat. Lately, I've been having a really hard time eating things that I used to eat in the past. For example, meat. I can't describe this feeling other than when I attempt to eat meat or think of eating it, I become turned away by the vibrations of the food. The vibration translate to me as holding so many impurities. As I continue on with my intuitive journey, I find myself eating an instinctively vegetarian diet as veggies and fruits feel incredibly bright and pure to me. Have you ever heard of or experienced this? I was raised eating meat and I had a fairly normal diet growing up. It's almost as if my body and spirit can no longer tolerate food that doesn't feel pure to me. Just to clarify, no offense to anyone out there that eats meat and I don't support or deny any particular diet. This is just what I've been feeling on a soul level. That makes perfect sense. And there's certain foods that I enjoyed for many years that I, I almost have a disdain for now. And, and I do think foods have a vibration and a frequency. If you're an omnivore, a vegetarian, a vegan, a, a pescatarian, it, a, a, whatever it might be that, that resonates most with your, your biology, with your frequency, that's what you should do to feel highest and best physically, mentally, and spiritually. And if that means not eating specific foods, then don't eat them. Or if it causes a reaction or you all of a sudden, you've, I've noticed there's a couple of things that I've enjoyed my entire life. Now, if I eat them, I almost feel too, too weighted down, too dense, too heavy. They just don't land the same way as they used to. Kudos to this person for paying attention to that. You do feel very different eating a vegetarian diet. I've done it a couple times, not for long term. I did the first time I did, I didn't do it well. It was just cutting things and not replacing protein sources and stuff. So it's a matter of making sure you're, you're taking care of yourself in all aspects. I think this is a great question. I do too. And I do think this is something that comes with raising your vibrations. You do start to feel that. I went through that as well. And I, I'm not a, like, I don't eat a ton of meat. But I, when I went through this, I cut out meat completely. And then I was pushing my grocery cart through Walmart and I fainted. <laughs> oh, not a, not a fun place to faint. And the doctor, you know, did my blood levels and put me on these iron supplements. And I did replace proteins with other, you know, non-meat proteins. And it still did not work for me. I, apparently something in my body needs meat like just once a month, twice. It's not like every day. It's very infrequently that I eat meat, but apparently something about my body needs it once in a while. And I hate that. And so what I do is um, I make sure I buy meat from, you know, local farmers and good sources, but I also bless the meat 
I have a charging plate I bought um, at Home Goods. It's just it's just a crystal plate. And I put it on there to charge it. I bless it. And I thank the animal for sacrificing its life. And I ask that its soul be happy and replenished and blessed on the other side. And when I do that, I don't have those negative effects. And I know that sounds really woo-woo, but hey, we are woo-woo, right? (laughs) (laughs) One last thing on that is, I love that this person put no offense to anyone out there that eats meat. and, And it's not about a particular diet because- we don't want to fall into that judgy pie pants of, oh, well, they eat ho-hos or they eat Fritos or they only eat, you know, the purest grain. It's it, it, it's nobody's business, but the person doing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We all need to accept people where they are. Yes. Okay. Our next one says, Hi, Samantha. You and I have so much in common. We're both Reiki certified. We both have lived in Connecticut. I think we're around the same age and we both love the golden girls. Wow. We do have a lot in common. (laughs) I would like to add that I found the coolest sticker set at world market. It's the golden girls lanai and it has all the little magnet figures around it. So I have that up on my refrigerator on the side. And I can't tell you, Denise, how many women over the age of 40 who come to my house, they're like, where did you get that? (laughs) So dear listener, we are not alone in our golden girls love. Unfortunately, another thing we have in common is a father with Alzheimer's. My dad is getting to the stage where he is scared and anxious, which leads him to getting upset and angry. He paces around and does all the nervous behaviors that are typical of someone at his stage, but he is scared and that fear is coming out as anger and that worries me. He isn't violent, never has been. I guess I'm just scared he might act out unintentionally and cause some sort of harm or damage to him or someone else. I hate not being able to comfort him. I hate that he feels this way all the time. I could go on for pages about him and I know you would get it. My question is, how are you handling this? Do you do Reiki on your dad? My father won't have anything to do with me doing Reiki. If you have any insight to share, I will gladly listen. I have a great support system, but I just never want to talk about my dad or his situation to anyone. It's pretty isolating. But the minute anyone asks me about him, I give quick answers and then change the topic. When you talk about your dad, however, I always perk up because stories you have already shared on the podcast have helped me already. So thank you for all you do. Well, first of all, my heart goes out to you because this is, I think for me personally, one of the most difficult things to go through is watching your parent. And, you know, for me, my dad was the rock of our family. And so to watch him fall apart like this, it's incredibly difficult on a, not even a daily basis on like a minute by minute basis. You know, like just yesterday I was driving to the post office and I had to rush home to get back to work. Well, when I drive past the post office, I drive past the care facility where he's living. And I can't tell you how painful it is to drive past that facility knowing he's in there and I won't be able to visit him until much later. So there's just always this constant pressure and stress. My dad has just started exhibiting a little bit of that anger and anxious reaction that you're talking about. And I know that is very common in the later stages of Alzheimer's, which is really hard to see. It does worry my sister and I, it's very, very hard. So what I have done and what I don't know, there's a part of him I know that is still in there, even though he doesn't know who I am or, you know, why I'm visiting him and why I insist on holding his hand he still knows that I'm important in some way. And so what I do, so for example, we, my sister and I took him out on Sunday and I don't know if it's a good idea to expose them to new things because we, we go back to the care facility and he was like, no. So that's painful. And he did not want to sit down for, for the dinner and all of that. And I just knelt beside him and I held his hands and I whispered into his ear and I said, remember who you are, daddy remember who you are. And I just kept going over and over all of these memories that he couldn't remember. Now, any Alzheimer's specialist will tell you, never say to a person, remember who you are. But I say to those people, I'm sorry, I disagree. Because when I whisper into his ear, you were a great father, you were a wonderful husband, you were a fantastic friend, you fought an alcohol addiction, and you served as a member of AA for over 35 years. 
You were an important ad executive. You supported your family. When I go on and on and on about all the stuff he's done, he calms down and he listens. Now, sometimes he'll go, I did all that. And I'll say, yes, you did. And sometimes he'll just get calm and listen. And I don't know, that has really served to help a lot. The other thing, now I don't sit there and say, Father, I'm going to do Reiki on you right now. But what I do do is I'll put the Reiki symbols in my in my hands and my palms and I'll tap them in and I'll say, Daddy, it's time for a shave or it's time to trim your nails. And so I'm not necessarily giving him Reiki without his permission. I'm just filling myself with Reiki so that when I trim his nails or wash his feet or shave him or get him into the shower and bathe him, all those things, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I'm filled with Reiki and I'm hoping that some of that positive energy is absorbed into him. And I'll tell you, I just think for these people at this stage of their life, touch is so important. So when when I go to see him, like I just went to see him yesterday and he had just had a shower. So I didn't have to help him with that. But I, he still, they're not showering him the way I would. Like I, I scrub his scalp and I get my nails in there. He loves that. So I still gave him a shave and I, I heated up the, the washcloth, you know, like just those little extra touches really do matter a lot. I bring my lavender lotion in and I massage his hands. He loves that. And he wasn't a touchy feely person as, as a normal, you know, father, husband. He wasn't like, let me give you a hug. He was very much an English person in that regard. But now that he doesn't get that touch all the time, he loves it. The other thing I'll do, and I don't know if he's in a care facility for you or not. So maybe you could just bring him to a church if that resonates with your beliefs. But I put him in the wheelchair and I wheel him to the chapel and he comes down instantly there. Now, I don't know if that's because the good old Catholic boy in him and the Jesuit teachings have never left, or if it's just the calming energy that any religious facility, no matter what denomination, has built into the energy of its walls. And I will just put my hands on his shoulders and I will just say prayer after prayer after prayer. And that that, that helps him. It helps me a lot more, I'm sure, than it helps him. But anyway, I just think that touch and prayer, and reminding them of who they are. Even if they don't understand your words, the energy of the love that comes through in that message of you are my father, and this is all that you meant to me. I, I just think it it heals them on a soul level, and I think it heals us too. And I'm sorry to ramble on about that, Denise. I just feel very passionate about this question. Oh, no, that wasn't a ramble. That was heartfelt and deep and honest, and I'm sure it helped not only the listener that wrote in, but other people who are struggling with a loved one with this very insidious disease. One thing to try, because I do believe in the healing power of music, is sometimes for folks that are in that state, they will resonate really, really well with the music they grew up with, with the music of their youth, of when they were in their prime. Music is amazing, amazing uh, healer. Also, and this is more practical for you specifically, is find someone that you trust that you can share the things that are going on that might be silly or uh, you know, just have a vent, have a place that you can talk to someone that, or write it down or do something, but get that energy out. But some of the things that happen when this, I believe, is happening for someone that you love the, the characteristics or they'll say something that's so sometimes humorous in a very dark kind of way and maybe finding a way to be a little lighter. Do you find that when you and your sisters can find some, some humor in some of the darkness that it helps? Oh gosh. Yes. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of darkness. I mean, yeah. Yeah. My, my dad has a friend in the nursing home that all the, caregivers call him his wife mm-hmm. and they're often holding hands and it's very odd because he's still very much married to my mom. Right. And we make all sorts of jokes about that because this woman that he's bonded with is lovely. And so my sister and I will often joke, well, she would have been a really kind mom. And we laugh about <laughs> it. Um, 
you know, he, my dad has a little crush on one of the nurses and we joke about that. So yeah, you've, you've got to find the humor where you can, or you'll go crazy. As a medium, people who have Alzheimer's, dementia, severe cognitive feel the same as people who are in spirit. So it could be some of the fear is he's having people show up and he can't justify that, or he's feeling their energy, or I've seen that a lot with folks. So um, maybe holding space in that way might help as well. That's a good point. And um, I know we need to move on to the next question, but meeting them where they are, I think is really important too. Like I have found that if someone visits my dad and says, how are you doing? How did you sleep last night? Like he does not respond to that. But if you sit with him and you go, Hey, Tom, how's it going? Isn't it? Let's go sit in the garden. And if I just sit and I don't talk to him, he'll talk to me. He'll share things. Mm -hmm. Now he doesn't have a lot of words, but he still will. He'll point to the birds and go wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that if I let him direct the visit more than me, it, it tends to be better. Good. That that's so, so important. So our, our empathy and compassion, well, to you, but well, we all have our hearts for you, Samantha, but also for all the other folks that are struggling with this in their families. It's, yes. It's, and did said, you know that watching sitcoms like Golden Girls is actually been proven to be therapy? It's called sitcom therapy. Oh, good and to so know. Like, if you have a difficult visit with your dad and you watch Blanche on the Golden Girls or Modern Family or The Office, it's been proven to lift your spirit. So just throwing that in there too. Go home and sit on the couch and, and veg away to the Golden Girls. It'll help. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Can you imagine if we have therapists who listen to the show, they must be rolling their eyes at me. <laughs> no, I apologize. I, I did a reading this week for this absolutely fantastic woman. And that's the tattoo that she's having put on her for her friend. They were big, big Golden Girls fans. I'm getting willies as I'm saying this. And she's having, thank you for being a friend with a little icon of what meant to her. She's having that tattooed for her friend as a a tribute tattoo. I love that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it brought tears to my eyes. It just Is it going to be an airplane over Miami or is it just going to say thank you for being (laughs) a (laughs) friend? Well, there was a specific graphic for the woman that I'm not going to share because that was personal. That's, but yeah, I, I think that that's um, an airplane over Miami. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> all right. So our next one, first of all, I want to give a heartfelt thank you for creating your show and keeping it running all through the pandemic. It's been a lifeline for me in more ways than one. And every time I've heard your voices, I felt better about whatever I was going through. And I know I'm not the only one. In particular, I want to express gratitude that your advice has always been sound, logical, and apolitical. We need more voices like yours as leaders. Well, thank you. That's incredibly humbling and and very thank you. That was beautiful. I wanted to reach out to you to ask about a particular issue that's come up around my empathy. I think another listener might have written in with a similar issue, but I wanted to see if you could clarify some more for me. The last two years have been particularly isolating for me because on top of the pandemic limiting all social interaction, I came down with a severely debilitating illness in October of 2019. To make a long story short, I had a benign brain tumor that gave me an intractable migraine, which is basically a nonstop headache that lasted for a year and a half. Oh, dear God. I was unable to do almost anything. I couldn't walk or talk much and watching TV or or using a computer caused me debilitating pain. So it was really hard for me to keep in touch with people, even over Zoom. I was almost completely disabled and cut off from the world twice over, cut off from the world twice over, once because of my illness and again, because of the pandemic. The good news is I had surgery and the headaches have decreased significantly I'm starting to be able to visit with people again, but I found the strangest thing is now happening. Before I got sick, I was pretty good at managing my energy and not absorbing other people's emotions. But now I find that when I'm with with people, my empathy goes through the roof. If the other people I'm with are in a good mood, I'm happy and energized for the rest of the day. But if anything is going on with them, I feel it intensely for hours afterwards. 
For example, I found myself thinking, why does no one like me? Why is everyone turning against me? Out of nowhere, over and over, until I realized my friend who I just saw was struggling with an issue that was causing her to have similar feelings. It feels like someone has turned the volume way up on my empathy. What used to be a level three is now a level 10. You know, when you listen to loud music for a while, afterwards you have a kind of ringing in your head and your whole body is kind of vibrating. That's similar to how I feel after spending time in person with people. I'm overwhelmed and literally vibrating from other people's energy. My question for you is, have you found that this experience has happened to a lot of other empaths who are now able to socialize more so after isolation, after so much isolation? Have you ever experienced anything like this? I know you're not doctors, but part of me is wondering if the part of my brain that acts on empathy was affected by my tumor and treatment. Have you heard of any cases of people who have gone through serious illnesses and have come out with stronger psychic abilities? Thank you in advance for all that you do. Well, again, thank you for such a kind note. And I'm so, so glad that I can't even fathom. I used to suffer from migraines horrifically and made some changes in my life. And, and I don't now, which I'm eternally grateful for. So on a, a year and a half of that, that's a level of strength that is insurmountable. That's truly, God love you. I do think there's brain chemistry involved from a scientific viewpoint, I'm not a medical doctor, not a physician, but I do love brain chemistry. And that would make perfect sense. Also, you know, we all, we'll talk about the veil is too thin or there is too much. I've been finding even through Zoom calls being more hypersensitive to other people's energy. So I think in addition to your your own physical stuff you've gone through, you're also tapping into that energy that is becoming more, it, it, it's almost uh, like needles coming in sometimes. It's almost like it, it's perforating our aura. And we even if we're really cautious about it and we're protecting ourselves and we're, or we're, we're keeping that, that open rapport or with people we love, I, I'm finding I'm, I'm much more porous to other people's energy as well. So I wonder if it is part of this transition that we're all going through. I think it definitely can be, but there are some stories in history that give precedence to her case in particular. Peter Herkois is a famous Dutch medium who fell off a ladder, I believe, when he was painting and hit his head and was suddenly psychic. There's a book, I think it's called Suddenly Psychic, about a woman who had a brain injury and suddenly was psychic. There's that movie and book, Brain on Fire, uh, which discusses similar things. So there are many, many, many cases of debilitating illness leading to psychic abilities opening. But there's something to being chronically ill for a long period that does change us and leaves us feeling isolated and thinking more deeply about things that in the, the hustle and bustle of life, we really never were given an opportunity to think upon and reflect upon. Aside from all of that, there's been something about this pandemic that has felt different than I think any other challenging time we've gone through as a nation, as a world. Don't you, Denise? I, how many emails like this? I mean, not with the, the brain stuff that she went through and thank God she's feeling better. But how many emails have we gotten of people saying they feel more isolated than ever before, more alone, uh, they're having more negative inner self-talk, all from this pandemic time? And equally, a lot of people who are actively choosing not to engage with people because they don't want to, they don't want to. Yeah. It's the end of, they just, it's too much because the isolation became more comfortable yeah, and it really does worry me, this lack of community that we're seeing. And everyone's saying, oh, things are going back to normal. I'm not really seeing that, you know? No. My kids went to a movie the other night. It was a pretty big movie. And they said there were two other people there. You know, so wow. they're, you go into store. There's just not this sense of community anymore. And I do think it's leaving everyone to feel very, very isolated and I think it's important. I know for me, I've been trying to just get out there more, you know, and see people more. And I'm not saying like emerging myself with a thousand people, <laughs> not wearing a mask. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't, don't be careful and cautious. I'm just saying 
I am trying really hard now to make an effort to meet a friend for coffee or dinner, to go for a walk downtown, you know, just to get back out and see people. I think we all need that. One of my neighbors, I hadn't seen her in a while. And we don't have the type of friendship where I can just pop by on a random 3 p.m. afternoon and ring her doorbell and go, how are you? We're just very casual friends, but we've been neighbors for a long time. And I saw her walking the dog and I said, oh my gosh, there you are. I haven't seen you. And she said, yeah, I had COVID. And I said, why didn't you text me? Like I would have I would have brought you dinner. I would have helped you out. I could have helped with your kids. And she was like, yeah, I just, everyone keeps saying that to me. I just never thought about it. I just stayed on the couch for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And aren't you seeing that more and more? It's like people are forgetting, oh, I have support. I have community. I have people I can reach out to. So I just think it's really important to do that. I agree. I think whatever that looks like for you is, is really important to find that support and that network. Yeah. And keep on keeping on with your newfound psychic abilities. Even if it does feel like a radio that's on high blast, you can learn to turn that down. But I personally believe that something beautiful comes at the end of every challenging time. And maybe your awakened psychic ability is the gift that comes out of your challenging time. Our next question says, hi, Samantha and Denise. I'm listening to your September Community Connections episode while putting away groceries. And I just had to stop what I was doing to send this email. In the past year, I came to the realization that my mother meets all the checkboxes for narcissistic personality disorder. Although I loved your podcast from the first time I listened, hearing that Samantha had the same experience gave me even more of a sense of connection and inspiration. Part of my focus right now is healing the effects of growing up with a narcissistic mother. I found the book, Will I Ever Be Good Enough by Carol McBride. I started reading, but found myself wishing I could just talk to someone who could relate and read the book together. That motivated me to find an online support group called Sir Thrivers of Narcissists, Borderlines, and Antisocials that meets on Zoom every Sunday afternoon. After a few meetings, I asked if there were any daughters of narcissistic mothers who would like to read the book with me, and there are. The facilitator of the group made me a co-facilitator and offered to help me do a separate Zoom meeting to read and discuss the book with any group members who were interested. Our first meeting was September 28th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Central. When the listener who wrote to you about her narcissistic mother said she never feels good enough, I immediately thought of the book, which, of course, you later mentioned as well. Big, huge yes to everything else you both said also. My question is, would it be possible for you to pass along information on the book group to your listener in case she's interested in joining? So when we do these community connection shows, we don't include names and we don't save the emails just to protect anonymity. So I don't have that listener's email, but I thought I would just mention this, Denise, so that if other people wanted to find it, they could. And it's meetup.com backslash survivors of narcissist borderlines and antisocials. And so hopefully if anyone wants to find that, they can Google it that way and discover it. Because I think it's so important, as we were just saying, to find community and to find that sense of connection and, oh, you get it. And so it's lovely to know that there are places out there online where people can do that and connect. And we'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. So that if you're interested, you can check those because it could be a real lifeline for you just to hear that when someone else understands your reality, there's a, a strength in that that is hard to replicate in other situations. Someone's real truth resonates with yours. That gives it a more genuine aspect of support. Definitely. So thank you for sharing that. The next one is, my question is about the darker side of good relationships when you're an empath. I don't mean dark relationships, but the dark side of good relationships with good people. I'm highly empathic and a variety of the clairs are becoming part of my daily life as I'm growing through these last few years in particular. I'm in a four-year relationship with a very good man who really brings so much beauty to my life. That said, he's still a man, LOL. Here are some examples of what happens. I can literally feel when an attractive woman catches his attention the same way your best friend would nudge you to show you something funny. I can be perfectly distracted in my own world, but I feel the nudge and my attention now goes to the object of his gravitation. 
I can feel his energy shift when we're in a public place. If there are women around, sometimes there is this ego door that gets open, looking for some simple feedback from an outside female source confirming he's so handsome. I think we all do this sometimes. Like it's one thing when our parents tell us we're smart and beautiful, but when an outside source tells you either one, you tend to believe it more. Like they have no obligation to say nice things, so it must be true. This one is for adults, but I have to throw it in. During intimate times on rare occasions, I can see and feel when he's thinking about someone besides me during the act. Yet mostly I have made this stop by asking my guides to help me by not letting this stuff in. I really don't want to know, but it happens. Mind you, none of this is all the time. None of it's threatening. But when you feel everything, you feel this stuff too. The darker side of real people in real relationships where intimacy is shared. As a human woman with knowledge of men and human nature, none of this is a surprise. And I get it all logically 100%. But as a simple woman in love with a man who just wants to know she is special to him and all the other warm, fuzzy jazz we want in a relationship, this sucks. It just plain sucks to see and feel these things, even if we understand and even relate. I know I can't be the only one this is happening to, but it's not talked about or written about that I can find. I can't help but ask, am I normal? Thank you for all you do. And the very first thing is I don't think that this is limited to heterosexual relationships or choices. I think this is all something we go through as human beings, especially as empaths that when we care about someone so deeply and we are so attuned to their energy, it's similar to anyone you spend more time with as an empath, as an intuitive, you start to, what is it they say? You're, you're a combination of the five people you spend the most time with. Yes. And when you have a, a cord and a connection and love and you feel that more deeply, it doesn't feel that you feel threatened by this, but you feel a little off put by this person's interest in someone else, especially during intimacy. And one thing that may help is being really present with your own self, like getting really back into your body. Uh, another thing that maybe is, if it's something you're comfortable with, have a conversation about it. If it's bothering you, it doesn't feel from the note disrespectful or blatant with the interest that this person is showing in someone else. I didn't get the feeling that he was like secretly cheating on her or anything. It just felt like a little ego boost. I just got a flash of this, this woman that I've, I've done readings for her for many years and she's involved in a relationship. And she said, Denise, we just both love to flirt and we are damn good at it. And I said, Oh, and she said, and we don't get upset because we're both that way. So I'll go flirt with like people at the bar and he'll go flirt with these women. And we're all good with that because we're so secure with each other that we know it's just the way we, we just like it. We like that little rush that we get from it. So, and I'm not saying that applies to the situation, but I think finding what, the fact that it's in a four-year relationship with a very good man who really brings so much beauty to my life. There's your focus. That is such a rare and beautiful gift. Well, no, I, I think she is normal. I think we all do have those feelings of like, am I special or am I this? Or are you looking at this person? And if you're looking at this person, are you doing something else with that person? I think all of those things are, are normal. But I think if she's this empathic and intuitive, if he's acting on these, she's going to feel it. And until you act on something, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't hold to that belief what what is that thing Jimmy Carter said? I cheated in my heart. I think so. Remember yes. that? Yeah. Remember? Okay. I, to me, I don't think that's that's cheating. I, I think you know we're all human, and men in particular tend to be very visual. And I don't know. I don't have an issue with any of that at all. I think you have to look at how does he make you feel? How is he treating you? And and that to me is it sounds like they're in this beautiful, wonderful relationship, and you know. Maybe he looks at a pretty woman. Maybe a pretty woman looks at him. I, I don't know. I don't. To me, this seems like a good relationship, and I think everything that she's feeling is is normal. One of the counterpoints to being so highly empathic is if there are any concerns or insecurities, they may be amplified sometimes for those of us that are very empathic. I think when it morphs into checking his phone or checking his email, then you're going down a different path, right? 
That that's so funny because that's one of the things that I I taught my sons from a very young age is you never have a right to go into a woman's purse and she never has a right to go into your wallet without permission. And not in the sense of financial, but just out of respect for someone's privacy. So yes. when like digging through someone's phone or or doing that stuff, and, and I'm not judging, I promise, but just find out what your level of comfort is in a relationship because you might be, to me, trust is everything. And once that's broken, it's really hard, but it doesn't feel like that's been violated for this person. No, not at all. Okay, our next one says, I was recently listening to your Oracle deck episode and Samantha was talking about tarot cards compared to Oracle decks. She mentioned the 10 of swords and said something about how there's not really any good news pulling that card. That's the card where it's the person on his or her stomach and they've got 10 swords in their back. All of a sudden, I remembered that a year or so ago, my puppy at the time had gotten hold of a tarot card and chewed it up. Out of all the cards, he only took one off my table and absolutely destroyed it. For some reason, I kept it, just tossing it on a bookshelf to be forgotten. I went to look at the card a minute ago and realized it was the Ten of Swords. When he chewed it up, I was so upset because it was a new, expensive deck and only the one card was ruined. But looking at the situation now, I wonder if it was a good sign. Before I got my dog, I had a dream that I was going to have him and have always sort of seen him as a protective figure. Perhaps him destroying that particular card could be a sign. Or maybe I'm totally crazy. What do you think? Oh, I think it totally could be a sign, especially if you always felt that he was a protector dog out of all the cards for him. There's 76 cards for him to choose from. And he picked that one. It's like he was saying, nope, not not to my person. That ain't going to happen. So I think it's great. And I just want to add that the Ten of Swords, Tens are the transition card between the energy and the numbers of the suit and going into the court cards. And for me, sometimes the Ten of Swords is about, you know, surrender, throw down your weapons. You've come to the end of a really difficult time. It's it's time to put that loss behind you and move forward. So there can be, sometimes the Ten of Swords can be a, a, ca- a reminder that it's a catalyst that you've made it through a really dark set. It's like, throw down your weapons. There's no point fighting that battle anymore. That's a really good point. I always call the Ten of Swords like the mini death card. And I don't see the death card in Tarot as a negative because of what you just said. It's it's a necessary ending and a new beginning. And so the Ten of Swords could be like that on a little level. Do you see it that way at all? I, I do, because it's usually indicative of some change coming or some release coming or letting go of, you know, you stop banging your head against the wall and doing the same stuff. It's, it's a real transitional card. And I, I agree, the death card is about rebirth and renewal and its endings, but it's also heralding in new beginnings. Our, our last one is, I've recently learned that I'm an empath, and although it makes total sense, it's a tough one to settle into. I struggle with feeling guilty, yet grateful with it, but also feeling overwhelmed with it. With this being said, it leads me to my question. How do I know if the vision intuition that I keep getting is correct or base, basically wishful wanting thinking. I get a lot of visuals, messages, thoughts. I feel so incredibly alone with this too, because it's not really something that I fully understand. So how can I explain it to anyone else? I feel like the visions that I get send me into a backtrack so I can't heal or move forward from a hurtful situation. What I keep seeing is a relationship that didn't work in the past. I'm seeing will work in the future. I don't want to hold on to this as I'm fearful it won't allow me to be open to someone else, but I literally can't shake it. This person is totally not right for me now. I know that with everything in me, but I worry I'm being held back from someone else because of what I'm hearing and seeing. I use oracle cards, meditation, nature walks, and yoga. All the right things, but I still feel so lost. I don't know how to trust and be open. Should just let the cards fall where they're supposed to. Yes, this is a downside to being an empath. And also, if you're just finding yourself on this path, the, the empath of feeling things so deeply, and I, I I don't understand completely with the feeling guilty yet grateful about it, but um, the question of how do I know if what I'm getting is correct or basically wishful thinking, the, the example I can use is I used to, I, I still pull a card every morning, but I used to roll in Oracle cards 
and uh, all those as a, as a tool to, to tap more fully into my intuition on, for my own personal work. I'll pull different cards in the morning. And I used to use two different decks. And one deck would, would always, always, always mirror exactly what I wanted the answer to be. And the other one would be, oftentimes would be more, didn't always give me the answer I wanted. And what I found over the years is I'd do the first one and it'd be like, oh, good. And then I'd double check it with the second one and it would be a different answer. And I'd be like, well, son of a bitch, I'm going to use this first deck because that's what that's my answer. But what I found over time was because cards or any kind of tool that you use or any kind of you know connection is going to work with what you really want. That first deck, was I was tuned with my energy of what my inner wanting was, my inner soul wanted, what I... I thought would be the best result. Whereas the other one was more objective. It was more, so I think finding some objectivity, the things that this person is doing with the Oracle cards, the meditation, the nature walks and yoga, it could all be that this person is going to come back into your life at some point, but the timing is where we get caught up. So we might think, well, do I hang on? Do I wait? Maybe the lesson is this is I have to let it go. It goes back to that surrender card we were just talking about. Let it go. And if it's meant to come in, it's going to come in better aligned with who I'm becoming, not who I used to be. Yeah. And I think, too, you have to look at the emotion around the message you're getting. And when we get messages from spirit, the emotion is always comforting and comes with this feeling of it's going to be okay even if the message is negative. When I kept getting that visual repeated in my dreams, in my meditation of my former husband getting shot in the line of duty, I still, I didn't stay up all night. I didn't worry about it all day. It was weird. It was like there was a protective energy around it. Everywhere I went, I found heart, heart-shaped seashells. I kept getting this message of this is happening, but it's going to be okay. I didn't have that worried, anxious feeling with it, which is unusual for me. And so I've come to learn, like you said, Denise, through practice and experience, that when I get intuitive messages that are accurate and actually coming from my intuition, even if they're frightening, scary, or worrisome, I don't get that fearful energy with it. And the fact that she has a lot of negative emotions around this makes me feel that this is either coming from her wishful thinking or from this her, the partner's projections. Does that make sense? Because look at the words in here, fearful, worry, can't shake it, um, right. holding me back. I mean, those are not things that usually our intuition is going to bring through. So I would recommend a cord cutting meditation where you cut cords to this past relationship, not saying that it won't materialize in the future, but I think we need to focus on the now and the present and let this go and open your heart to love, universal love, self-love, true love and not apply a person or a name or a specific incident or relationship to that. Just open yourself up to love in general. Because when we hold on to one way, one person, it usually is not the, the way to manifest. And, and I have to say, when it feels so right and true that it is that one person, even though our logical mind is saying all the things that you just said, which are great advice, our emotional heart or our what feels like our intuitive is saying, no, I'm not done here yet. I know there's something more to learn. And that could be a past life connection. It could be a karmic goal you're working on with this person. It could be that they came in as a messenger for you, for someone that's going to have similar attributes, but bring so, even so much more into your life. Well, we hope these questions and answers have been helpful to you and given you some food for thought. If you want to share a question with us, you can always email us enlightenedempaths at gmail.com or you can message us on Facebook. You can find us there by searching Enlightened Empaths. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a kind review on your listening platform or tell a friend. And don't forget to check out our websites, samanthafay.com and thegratefulmessenger.com. And we're going to be offering a show around the holidays that is validation of from spirit and we would love to hear some of your stories or experiences where you've had something that so touched your heart in a positive way from your loved ones in spirit so if you could send us a note again at enlightened at 
gmail.com or put those as a message on the Facebook page. We would love to help raise the vibration with one another during the holiday season to really bring through some positive messages of validation. I look forward to reading those. That'll be great. Thank you guys so much for sharing in advance. If you've received a a feather or a dream visit or just a wonderful confirming story that your loved ones in heaven are still with you, we want to read about it and then share it with listeners. Yes. It's going to be a great show. It is. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.